<laughs> it's, it's my typical. There you go. Uh, what's going on, everybody? <laughs> what's going on, everybody? Uh, welcome back to my BookTube channel. Uh, it's been a while. Uh, it's probably been about a month since I, I've done anything, you know, crazy stuff with baby going on, my wife going back to work uh, as a teacher, and that's been super stressful. Um, and then, of course, just, you know, full-time job. But it's nice to be back. And today I'm joined by P. Jelly Clark. He is the Nebula and Locust Award-winning author of the short story, The Secret Lives of the Nine Negro Teeth of George Washington, and the Hugo Nebula Surgeon and World Fantasy-nominated author of the novellas The Black God's Drums and The Haunting of Tramcar 015, not to mention being a finalist for a couple of those. Uh, his newest novella, Ring Shout, will be released on October 13th from Tor.com Publishing. But, Mr. Clark, how are we doing? I'm good. How are you doing? <sighs> yeah. Making it. <laughs> you can in these times, right? Yeah, exactly. You know, was, times. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, for, first off, just let me say how much of a pleasure it is having you on this evening. I've been I've been a big fan of yours for a few years now, and thank you. Uh, Ring Shout, uh, which you, you've read in my review, but it's without a doubt my favorite novella of 2020, and quite possibly ever. So seriously, thank you for being here. Um, wow. That's, that's but, a great uh, honor. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I actually wrote in my review that uh, I think it's the best thing I've read from tour.com since uh, Victor Laval's the Battle of black Tom. Oh, wow. That's, that's uh, so, that was some inspiration. Definitely. Oh, uh, oh he's, he's yeah. an amazing writer. Uh, amazing, yeah. And uh, I'm reading the page right now and it's just, just amazing writing. It's, it's crazy. It's crazy. But, you know, I, I know uh, among the chaos that is the pandemic and the election season, I'm sure uh, I'm sure life's kind of interesting. But are you hanging? Oh, is it like what's happening? Is something happening in the news? I was uncertain. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I couldn't have written all of this. Could not have written. I, know. I don't think anybody could have. Uh, it's the uh, I, I don't even is it science fiction? I mean, we didn't call it. I, just know, I, I guess uh, an editor would have said that's implausible. Come on, let's be serious. <laughs> there's, 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 there's no way yeah. that you know people would be walking around in masks and then also being mad at people that aren't walking around in masks and then also having an election with the candidates we have. <laughs> we'll leave it at that. <laughs> we'll leave it at that. Yeah. Oh my gosh, uh, it's funny. I was. Uh, I don't. I don't know if you watch South Park or any kind of parody uh, shows or cartoons, but they I've had their uh, pan- okay. They they had their pandemic special episode the other day, and uh, it, it just killed me because every time I see somebody, you know, improperly wearing a mask out, uh, they, they <laughs> joked and called them chin diapers because everybody wears it below their nose. I've seen those. <laughs> I've seen people wearing those duck caps, sir. Or yeah, or headgear. I've seen all kinds of things. Yeah, so. yeah. Uh, it's it's nuts. I mean, I, and, and I'm assuming it's everywhere, but I feel like definitely here in the South, uh, a lot of more people are more arrogant toward it. Because uh, you so know, we, 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 New we, England. Uh, you have in New England, even the people who want to. I've seen the people who are just. I think, I think we don't have a, a culture that is used to wearing masks, and because of that, I think people just don't know. And, and you know, it'd be great if we had like, oh, I don't know, some kind of weird national response that, you know, told everybody on the TV, this is how you wear the mask and had a cartoon. I mean, I don't know. I don't run government, but, you know, <laughs> just following here. and, you know, that might help people who want to wear masks understand how to wear masks. But Right, right. It, 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 is this supposed to cover the back of my head? I'm, I'm very confused. <laughs> it's almost as if the people who are currently running government uh, don't know how to run government. It's, it's, it's odd. 
I mean, I feel like it's been like that for a while. <laughs> I feel like everybody is about to start going like the Josh Malaman route of Bird mm-hmm. Box. Everybody's just going to wear it over their eyes. Yeah, that's what's going to happen. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, well, kind of uh, kind of starting us off, uh, I want to know a little bit about you, a little bit about your life, you know, childhood, kind of going through grade school and secondary school, yeah. uh, and just kind of how you got to where you are today. <laughs> right, right. Oh, you just want me to start off with that, so – a long time yeah. ago in the galaxy now. Um, <laughs> so I was uh, born in Queens, New York. Uh, I, uh, two, um, uh, my parents were uh, immigrants from the Caribbean, from the island of Trinidad and Tobago, Island Republic of Trinidad and Tobago. And so I was born there, lived in Queens for a while, lived early in Brooklyn. And then I think before I was fully two, my parents sent me to live in Trinidad with my grandparents. Um, multiple reasons, because I had childhood asthma, because because they were young people trying to get their lives together. And this is kind of common with immigrant families. They'll send you to <laughs> live uh, back home with the grandparents or family. And so I was. And so my early years were uh, living in Trinidad and growing up with my grandparents and understanding that my grandparents were my parents, right? This is when I become cognizant, oh, they're the people I live with. <laughs> These are my parents. And my parents would come and visit. And I'd be like, these very nice people come and visit and give me things. And that's great. They give me presents. They come around. They hug me. They seem really to like me. And they're nice. Um, But my grandparents are my parents. Uh, I'm a young Trinidadian boy. That's how I saw myself. I went to, um, they call it first standard. I went to first few years of that there. And then my mom came, took me back to the United States and culture shock. I went to New York. Um, And even though New York has a large uh, Caribbean community, I was on Staten Island. That's all I'll say about that. (laughs) It was just just culture shock, right? Even coming back. And so uh, lived in New York for a while, got acculturated, lost my Trinidadian accent by watching a lot of um, Peter Jennings. He used to be a reporter on ABC. And that's who I would watch uh, to learn uh, the American speech. (laughs) So... Went to school for a short while in New York and then picked up again. Um, and we moved to uh, Houston, Texas. And it's in Houston, in Texas, I will spend most of my life, right? It's pretty much the place where I'll grow up my formative, my teen year, my early childhood, teen years, and then uh, much of my adult life um, before I end up moving uh, to back to New York as a as a 30-something year old adult. And then uh, recently now, I live in New England, uh, in Connecticut. So what can I say? We've had, I come from a family of nomads who uh, have moved and moved. And I mean, to this day, my sister's in Atlanta, right? I'm in Connecticut. (laughs) We're just all over the place in a sense, right? We've 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 moved a lot. And, you know, I think that and I can definitely say that over time, uh, that's influenced who I am, my writing and everything else. Um, uh, I often wonder if that's why my 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 uh, my characters are often searching for themselves and their identity and where they belong in place because I've gotten used to moving from place to place at times and having to sometimes reinvent myself, uh, immerse myself in this uh, new culture, new understanding. It's almost like a portal fantasy, walking from world to world. I just you know, no dragons or anything on the other side. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> we, we might be on their way there. <laughs> yeah, right. right so, you know, that's my, I always ask, that's my biography. And then I guess we can talk about how all those things I think have shaped um, how I write, the things I write about and so forth. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I'm sure it was a culture shock going from New York to Houston. <laughs> because it's yeah, that, that completely been, different. I don't know bigger than moving from Trinidad to New York. I think the, actually the bigger one is moving from New York to uh, Texas. Because I was like, wow. You know, I thought I would get off and like I'd see horses. And I did see some horses. <laughs> and I would see different things. But, you know, Houston, the South was just, was different. It was also my parents being, um, again, immigrants from the Caribbean at that time. Houston didn't have a really large uh, Caribbean immigrant population or they were scattered. And so, you know, it went from in New York, like all my friends were pretty much a mix of a lot of kids from uh, the West Indies, uh, kids from like Puerto Rico and other places. And, um, and as well as African-Americans in when I moved to the South, then my entire cultural immersion became uh, like a black Southern uh, understanding of culture and speech and everything else and that you know that took acclimating um but you know that's that's literally where i grew up and so people always ask me where am i from i was like oh i could tell you stories but <laughs> i have to claim uh that place because it again it became a place where i spent the longest part of my life i gotcha um so tell me tell me about your life outside of writing your and mm -hmm. we'll basically say your career outside of writing because i mm -hmm. know it, it probably has a little bit of an influence on your writing. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. <laughs> so, you know, it's funny. I don't often think of it that way, but it does. Um, I'm a historian. Uh, I uh, I'm I teach at a university here in Connecticut. Uh, I'm an assistant professor of history, and so I study actually issues of slavery and emancipation, as well as slavery and popular culture and film. Um, and I'm currently working on a manuscript. I, yeah, I write outside of this stuff. I have my, my work writing <laughs> that's required. And so I'm currently, for instance, working on uh, a journal article about um, these riots that took place in 1834 uh, New York. And they were these anti-abolitionist, anti-Black riots in 1834 New York, um, done in part because it was believed that these abolitionists were in league with um, British abolitionists because that's also the year that British emancipation begins in the nearby uh, British Caribbean. And so there are all these transnational uh, <laughs> intrigues going on where these you have these, these, these New York um, pro-slavery folks uh, in league with, uh, I believe they're defending the South and the Union against these abolitionists and they're black allies who are uh, bringing these foreign ideas of black freedom from the Caribbean. So that's my current, I'm writing a, an article on that. So that's, that's what I do when I'm uh, not doing this other stuff. <laughs> all, all the, all the other things. Yeah. 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 I gotcha. I mean, I, I mean, I assume you know, that that obviously takes up a lot of your time. I, I just, I can't imagine you have time to also write. Writing to writing. You know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's writing for enjoyment, like, uh, not writing for work. <laughs> yeah. That's like my primary thing, writing and now teaching online. And then it's, you know, it's grading online and everything that's happening now because of the pandemic. And I kind of use speculative writing. It's almost like my treat. Like, you know, when you finish something, oh, I get a cupcake or something. Oh, I get to go write some speculative fiction. But I got to get done with all this other stuff first. And then I can go have podcasts with you or do these other things. And so 
even though like now that, you know, I have contracts and things, it's become less of a, oh, this is fun. And like, more like, oh, I have to get this done. I, I signed things and I put my things <laughs> so, I, I said I would be done by a certain time. <laughs> right. And so I don't want to say it's become a chore, but it's no longer the simple, oh, I'll write when I feel like it. And I'll just spin off what I want. Now it's okay. I got to focus. I got to get this done. I, I will say that I, I I do like hearing that my chat is a treat. I, I do like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> we get to do this. It's great. I can get out of 19th century newspapers. Uh, yeah, there you go. Um, all right. So so I know a lot of uh, a, a lot of people ask authors the question. You know, how did you get started writing, or when did you get started writing? So I've, I've got kind of a twofold question. So mm -hmm. when did you start writing, and when did you start writing seriously? That's a great question. <laughs> Right? That's a great question. I mean, I think I started writing when I was a kid, right? I would, like, I loved, I loved anything to do with book projects in class. I love getting those poster boards and doing book projects. Oh, I, I love yeah. that stuff. I still have one I did for the Two Towers, I think, in middle school, where I swear I got it exactly what Jackson would do in the films. I'm like, that's it. I drew my ants the same way. I have the death of Boromir. That's perfect. Right. So, um, you know, so I, I used to read a lot and my parents encouraged me to read a lot. My my uh, mom would take me to the library constantly, my sister and I. So I did a lot of reading and that kind of triggered my inspiration. Like, hey, maybe I can do some of this. And so I would write. I made little comic books, but mostly they were for maybe for class or for friends or for my sister or something like that. And um, but it was just always play. Right. It was just always something I did on the side. I didn't go to college um, thinking, oh, I'm going to do writing. I didn't I didn't even go there to thinking I was going to do history. I started off as a pre-med major. That's a whole other story. <laughs> right. So it's funny how things can take. I got the doctor in some way. Right. There you go. Um, but I didn't uh, I, I don't think I took the idea of writing seriously until sometime after college. Even though between that time I'd been reading, doing little bits of things here and there, it just wasn't on my radar as something that I would do uh, as a career or even as something I would do with the hopes of getting published. And I can, we can go into a lot of reasons why that would be. Um, not often seeing people that look like me and it's not even consciously that I'm doing it, but I'm simply, oh, that's just not in my wheelhouse, right? I'm not going to be a writer. It's like, that's not going to happen. And I don't think it was like until again after college as I'm sitting around and I'm I've gotten to read like a lot of black authors that I didn't get to read when I was a kid like Octavia Butler and others and and seeing that oh look at all these here are these black writers creating these things and I have ideas I want to say and I want to put them in speculative formats and I think it wasn't until then that I started saying okay let's see what I can do and I started trying to write, though even then I would say for most of my early, even serious writing career, I think it should be in stages of serious with air quotes. I had no idea what the market was. I didn't know, I had no idea how long a short story should be. I didn't know where to submit anything. I was completely divorced from the whole world of agents and querying. I was just writing to write. Right. I don't think it would be like another maybe six, seven years from that time, or even maybe even 10 years before I was like, okay, now I kind of have an understanding of how the writing world works, All right? So it, it took a while. 
Yeah. But I say, but I say from, from, from draft to who do I submit this to? Right. How long does it take to get some kind of feedback? Yeah. Is an agent going to happen? Like, yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I can imagine. Writing, a bunch of wrote, right. Like my yeah. short stories would be like, I'm writing a short story. 30,000 words. I finished my <laughs> short story. What do I know? I'm completely ignorant about markets and how long short stories should be or how long novels should be. So it's just, you know, it took a while to learn that. But in the, but it was kind of liberating and fun because all I was doing in the beginning was writing. Mm-hmm. And every idea that I possibly had was like, I think it was my most creative time because I was just writing everything. Whether or not I look back and I like any of it now, it was still a really creative moment. I gotcha. Now, now I, I'm going to go back a little bit. I, I, I need to see the two towers projects that you say you still have it. You got to post it at some point just so everybody so, can bask in its glory. I should go. I should go back. I had it at one point, and then you oh, go okay. home to your parents' house, and you're like, "Where's all my stuff? Oh, we put it in the garage. Oh, you put it in the garage." And so I haven't seen it again. For all I know, okay. it was it crushed it. under everything. You know? I, yeah, don't leave things at your parents' house. They say, well, you didn't want it. It's been here for like 15 years, so. <laughs> yeah, yeah you, remember, you remember that closet that was in your bedroom? Yeah, we cleaned it out. <laughs> yeah, basically. <laughs> so. Gotcha. Um, I still have it from, to commit it to memory, however, so. Oh, that's good. There you go. Uh, so do you have any particular writing habits or daily rituals that you use to get the words flowing? I mean, I, I, I guess I guess for for work and for yeah your treat writing. So one of the things I had, I had done, and this was for work, was um, I, I took like this. They had, they had this course and this boot camp on how to manage time, which um, really gave me a lot of pointers on how to manage time for my uh, academic work, and I kind of brought that into my creative work. Even though they're like two different things, I flip off a switch and turn on another one when I start. I even have two different laptops that I work from to do creative work and academic work. So that when I pull up my academic work, I'm not like uh, trying to go back and look at my manuscript or vice versa. And so I guess the habits I learned from there was actually you know, blocking out certain segments of time and writing. I think one of the most important things was if you say you're gonna write, just write. Don't try to go read the whole internet. Don't uh, say, I need to go get another cup of water. I need to get some coffee. This is pencil knee sharpening um, because they talked about how people procrastinate, right? And then you look up and you go like, oh, look how much time has passed. I guess now I only have 10 minutes. Maybe I shouldn't write at all. And you'll be amazed how often that'll continue. And so one of the habits I developed was if you're going to write, then sit down and write, right? Even if it's not the best thing, just sit down and write it down and get it down. And then you can look up and say, oh, wow, I, I got, you know, time passed and I did it. And so that's one. Um, uh, the other habit I do, and this doesn't work for everybody, um, I'm not a person who can go and write like the middle scene or the end scene and then come back to the beginning. Impossible. Like, I kudos to people who can do that. I cannot. I have to write from the beginning and take it to the end. Uh, and in that sense, I create, um, I create sketches and outlines for everything I write. Like it'll start off, um, used to start off in little notepads. Now it starts off thanks to the phone, that little notes feature in phone. I make sure I update that constantly because I have entire stories just bullet pointed in there. And I can tell like this is the first part, this is the second chapter and so forth. And then when that's done, I move it to something like Scrivener 
which is the only thing I use Scrivener for, by the way. <laughs> it is a great place to hold my uh, outlines. And once I have an outline, um, it's so much easier for me to write the story because now I know pretty much what's going to happen next. I know where I'm going. And then it's just, it's like filling space and just getting it done. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so you know, based on the, the stories that you've written so far mm-hmm. and, and say published so far, uh, how much do you uh, divert from, I guess, what your outline is to what the finished product is? Or do you pretty much yeah. stay with your outline I mean, from beginning to end? You know, you never really do. Because uh, when I start off my outline, because normally by the time it gets to the outline, I've, I've really gone through and it really goes through the most changes probably when I'm just doing the notes. Where I'll have notes where I go in like, it could be this or it could be this or this. So I've given myself all these options. And so by the time I sit down to do the sketch style, by the time it gets to Scrivener, that's the new thing, right? It used to just be a word, but by the time it gets to Scrivener, it's pretty much been, I've plotted out chapters and everything, right? And so um, that's what I go by. But however, it always changes. Mm-hmm. Um, I said I was going to do 15 chapters. Guess what? I need to add in a whole other chapter to this thing. I can't finish it in one chapter. Now I've ended up with 20 something <laughs> chapters. Um, uh, this was going to work for a while, but I found out this just doesn't fit with the plot. This makes the plot too clunky. And so, yeah, um, I will say for the most part, the bare bones of what I've written, I found I often stay there, right? Like it's not going to, I don't fundamentally like, oh, wow, a completely different story. In fact, I will sometimes decide to verge into like a completely different story. And then after about 20 different versions that I save, you know, draft one, draft 1A, draft 2A, I tend to come back probably to that original version is what I found, no matter what, how much I diverge. And so, you know, it's going to change as you write, undoubtedly. But I think because the way I set up my writing, I tend to still stay within the skeletal framework um, of what I started with. Okay. Before the editors uh, are telling me the things I need to change, that's all. Before, before the editors hack it to pieces, right? Yeah, <laughs> it's always good. They, my editors offer me great advice of enhance this. Uh, do we need this part? And I have to, have to find. I have to argue with them and argue myself for why something is needed or maybe why it needs to go and all those things. Yeah. Uh, thank, thank the world for editors, right? <laughs> Great. For good editors, I like magical creatures <laughs> from Fillory. So, <laughs> um, who uh, who would you say are some of your biggest writing influences? Uh, I guess mm-hmm. you know then and now, right? You know, whichever you choose. Yeah, I suppose if I were to, um, you know, I, I guess within fiction, within let's say, let's say within speculative fiction, I think that uh, you're influenced by who you write. So it's funny. A lot of my early writing. Uh, probably sounded a lot like, um, I don't know, David Eddings or Robert Jordan, because I was, you know, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to take four pages to tell you uh, what someone's hat is like. Uh, And it was that kind of writing. And I think um, later on, though, I think my influences became people like um, uh, N.K. Jemisin and, uh, you know, modern writers like uh, Victor Laval and others, a lot of contemporary writers. and just looking at how they put words together, looking at how they examine things, looking how daring at times they are, or how they subvert certain tropes and ideas. I think that's that's probably influenced me more than some of the earlier people that I was probably copying and looking at, right? And you know, then I, I think some others like I think uh, 
I think people like uh, Tanada Reeve-Dew, for instance, um, I think her, her world building, how she takes a contemporary world and just kind of changes it a bit with her, um, I think it's the, it's the story about the Living, it's the Living Blood series. I mean, it's just so well done and looking how she makes that real world, how she makes it our world and yet somehow a little different by adding these world building elements. So things like that have, you know, really been, really been helpful. Okay. Um, how do you prevent and or break through writer's block? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I'll tell you this. Um, I'm not, I don't know that I get a whole lot of writer's blocks. Now, what I do get is procrastination. Like, if I haven't had the story yet, I'm going to keep looking and walking by it. Like, Ring Shout, I think I pitched Ring Shout in April, and it was supposed to be due like in August. I started it in August <laughs> because I was kind of just like, oh, I got to do all this other stuff. And I just, and so I don't, I don't get, I was like, I don't get writer's block. What I tend to get, is getting started when there's a blank page there. I'll keep mm -hmm. putting it, I'll keep putting it off, putting it off. Oh, I need to do some more research. I need to do some more of this. I need to think about it more. But once I actually start writing, because again, by then I have the sketch, that helps, mm -hmm. right? Um, also little techniques that I'd heard from other writers. I heard a writer once say um, that when they write, they park things uh, downhill. And what they meant by that was, you know, when you are writing and you know exactly what's going to come next. In fact, you've been so excited to reach that part. They said, stop, don't write it because you'll probably rush through it anyway. But don't write it. Stop there. Park your car downhill. Basically, you know where you're going. And then when you pick up again, you're not like, OK, what am I going to do today? You know what you're going to do today. You're excited to get to that part. And so I use little techniques like that, I think, probably prevents me from just coming and staring at the screen. Um, but yeah, I think uh, I think that helps me. I, I hope that helps me not get writer's block. Knock on wood. I'm like I'm probably gonna now go and be unable to, to write. But uh, that helps. And I guess one last thing is that before I commit to a story and I'm writing it, I'm imagining it for a long time. And back in the in the olden days when we used to do things like go to the gym, <laughs> right? I would literally uh, be sitting and thinking as I'm doing reps or something, I'm thinking about the story and I'm working through the story in my head. I'm doing it while, um, when I used to have to do long commutes, um, I would think up these stories constantly. And so, you know, if the story sits with me in a way that I, and I'm always jotting down all these new notes, it helps me, it helps me with that, you know? So, um, <clears throat> so kind of coming back to, uh, something I hinted at earlier. Mm -hmm. um, how does your work as an academic historian influence and or enhance your work? Yeah. Um, you know, I think it's not even like I set out to purposefully do so, but there are just things I'm going to see in the real world that sometimes, even though I'm reading about it historically, that creative part of my mind is like, this is wild, right? This actually happened. And then you begin thinking of it more fantastically. So I remember I was telling someone, you know, why do I do that? I don't know. Why did Token decide? I could just tell you about ecology or I can have some talking trees do it. <laughs> right? I can just tell yeah. you about how horrible it was during World War I or I'll create the dead marshes in Mordor, right? I'll, and so I think as writers and storytellers, we, we take from the real world in ways and we may enhance it perhaps for the same reason people have always told fables and tales uh, it gets people's attention in some ways, right? And so 
I think, um, yeah, I think, I think in that sense, I think if there's a way that my academic work impacts me that way, where I'm sometimes not purposefully doing so, but I realized that the idea I had, oh, it came from this thing I happened to read or this thing I studied. Um, and so, yeah, that's really helpful. Plus, when it comes to researching, uh, I take some of those same tools that I have to do academic research and I apply them to, you know, uh, doing my doing my magic on Google. Yeah. <laughs> what kind of wine did they drink in 1920s? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I keep I keep thinking back to uh, the haunting of tram cars zero one five back in the beginning, and I think it was something they were eating. Yeah, and it was just it was like constantly like just describing it. It's just kind of made you want you know just to, right, to jump yeah. through the page and grab some yourself. You know? Yeah, food is such one of the perfect things of world building, and I think it gets short thrift. And I think some people realize how important food is in world building. So, and I think the person who I, I, and I thought so, and I thought maybe it's just me. And then I heard um, the author Saladin uh, Ahmed of uh, the Crescent Moon stories. He has a lot of food in there and he actually said it in a thing. And I was like, yes, vindication. Yes, food builds worlds because everybody has to eat. Yeah. Food is universally communal. People tend to do it together. It's what you spend, you can spend your time doing everything else, but you know what becomes a question, hey, what are we gonna eat today? It can become a very long conversation. You spend time going to grocery stores and things to find food. Uh, you know, before that we forage for food, we hunted. So is this important uh, part of society, right? We put so much into it. Uh, and it's my thing to writers, um, a little secret to writers, don't, don't leave it out. People will notice when you bring yeah. up, uh, food in a meal. Right, yeah. Yeah, you know, it it doesn't take a whole lot. I mean, you can just have it at the beginning and then not mention it again, and yeah. then like randomly, you know, throw it back in there. But and people uh, remember. Yeah. yeah, obviously I did. <laughs> There's a great book, by the way, and it's it's semi. I guess I would call it more a little bit magical realism. It's called The Pasha of Cuisine, and I can't think of the author right now. It's a Turkish author, and his entire story built around food. <laughs> It's an amazing story because it's entirely built around the notion of food having these uh, magical essences and impacts on people, right? And this author has weaved this entire very complex tale set in um, an Ottoman uh, an Ottoman Turkey based on this, and it's it's fascinating. Interesting. You can do a lot of things with food. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so while I could sit here all day and ask questions about the Black God drums, the haunting of tram cars, 015, I want to thank you for saying 015, by the way. People can say it. I don't mind if people say anything, but 015 was how I thought of it because I'm always interested. <laughs> I've heard people say 015. Someone once said 01S. I said, that's a, that's a new one. That's good. That's a new one, yeah. I mean, I, I always thought it was 15 and I listened to the audio. Yeah, heard 15. <laughs> And he says zero one five, and I was like, "Well, that has to be hard." Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but uh, but I want to I want to talk a little bit about your new uh, your you know your upcoming releases. Oh so yeah, first. Yeah, that one right there. So uh, yeah, obviously first we've got Ring Shout. Look at that, we thicker. People want me to write more. Good, you got you got a little bit more. Yeah, I know. Yeah. You, you know, you're you're a hefty little hefty little tome for for a tour.com novella. Uh, yeah, not, yeah, not many people almost scrape 200 pages. <laughs> yeah. People like people like novellas. Thank goodness for tour, because as I said, my overwriting self, I I have a ton of novellas and novelettes. They were simply sitting on my uh, sitting somewhere in Dropbox because there was no place to publish them. 
Yeah, keep them coming. Yeah, I mean, Tor's been killing it for several years with their with their novellas. Yeah. Um. So, so can you tell the uh, first off, you tell the audience a little bit about it, uh, your influence behind it, and how Mm -hmm. you managed to mesh dark fantasy, historical fiction, and supernatural horror. Yeah, I don't know how I put it all together, but (laughs) (laughs) so I mean, you know, the idea for Ring Shout, uh, and I guess I guess you kind of as I say what it is, I think. Think of it as a Southern Gothic fantasy with uh, a lot of horror, <laughs> um, but it is fantasy. There's a heroine, there's swords, there are monsters, um, and it is somewhat a set in our world and not, right? It is uh, things that are familiar and unfamiliar um, written through fantasy, right? And so like you were asking me earlier about taking academic worlds and history and putting it uh, within writing, I think this, I think this is a story where I probably did a lot of that, a lot more than in others, right? This one definitely has it. Um, the idea for it, I think, started bubbling up sometime in 2015. Um, I don't know I don't know what brought it to the fore, but I started thinking about this larger story. And I think I, I knew certain things. I, I knew I had a, a heroine with a sword. I thought of it, I said, I want it to be set in the South, right? I want it to be set in our world, but, a world that's a little different, right? So not exactly urban fantasy. I don't know what you want to call it. Southern rural fantasy, something of the sort, right? Make up, make up something new. <laughs> yeah, and um, and I knew I wanted it to be sometime in the early 20th century. And that was, and I and I didn't know much else. I didn't have anything anything else exactly down. And I think from there, as I said before, how I would just start thinking up ideas and sitting with it. Um, this was. This was the year before I earned my PhD. I was doing a fellowship in, out in, in, in a small town in uh, Pennsylvania, this college in Indiana, Pennsylvania. And I lived in DC, Washington, DC, right? Uh, well, I, that's where my wife was. So I basically had to pick up for a year and live in the small town of Pennsylvania, but I would go home like every other weekend or every weekend or so. And that's a long drive. I forget how long the drive was, this long. It's two hills, there's fogs. <laughs> everything. And that was a great time to simply sit and think. And I think that year I sat and thought about that story a lot. Um, you know, I would play Ring Shout, Ring Shout, the songs that accompany Ring Shouts. I would play some of them and just listen to them as I went along. And, you know, when I would stop and I finished driving, I'd jot down notes. And then a lot of things just got thrown in there. Um, I remember watching Beyonce's video for Formation and I remember I was like, oh, I, there are whole scenes here that I'm going to incorporate into this story. And it didn't have a name yet, right? But I knew it would fit. And I just kept it there, but I was busy doing other things. This was when I was getting uh, a Dead in Cairo published. I was uh, publishing some other short stories. I had, this was before um, the haunt, this was before I even thought up the haunting of Tramcar 015. So this story was thought up before that, right? And so, I was doing all these other things, so I didn't really have a chance to get to it. But it would just always sit there in the back of my head. And uh, then finally in 2019 is when I pitched it. And I pitched it on a whim because, uh, and we'll talk about Master of Jin, I suppose, soon. Master of Jin, I finally signed with Tor in 2019. I was gonna do this novel, but the publishing world is slow. The novel was gonna come out for a while. And so my editor at the time, Diana Foe at Tour, she was like, well, do you have anything else? Maybe something like a novella that can come out between? And I said, oh, well, I have this idea. 
<laughs> I said, I think I want to call it Ring Shout. And I pitched the idea and she was like, that sounds great. And um, that's kind of how it, it started. That's kind of how it started actually becoming a thing. It went from this idea in my head to something. Now, now I have to write it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and you were talking about, you know, the horror aspect. I mean, the, the yeah. body horror itself is uh, mesmerizing and also terrifying. <laughs> uh, and so, you know, you, you're talking about how the idea had been kind of simmering for a while. Yeah. Um, I mean, had the, the creatures in the story, had they also been just kind of simmering around your thoughts or was there something yeah. that just like clicked and you're hey, like, no. this is what they have to be. You know, a little bit of both. Um, while the story started, like I said, bubbling up in 2015, a lot of the elements of it were older, like a lot older. Before I got my PhD, I actually got a master's way back in the day, like, you know, 15 years ago, I, I got a master's and I, and that master's was based on um, issues of memory and slavery and reading uh, these accounts by ex-slaves that were taken uh, by the Federal um, Writers Project uh, during the Great Depression. And it's this whole trove of them. And so I had written my master's thesis, uh, which was on enslaved women and violent resistance and memory. But while I was doing so, I was reading all of these narratives. And it's within those narratives that I first saw former slaves who had lived through reconstruction in the South talk about the Ku Klux Klan as monsters, right? Call them spirits, claim that some of them had horns. And so those ideas had been there, right? Before I even knew I was gonna put it all together in the story, there's my daughter, uh, <laughs> uh, so, uh, before I even knew that I had a story, I had, I had basically bookmarked all those things and written notes on them because I was like, this might be useful someday. Um, my first introduction to night doctors came from reading those things, about hearing about night doctors. And so there were all these little things that came from there. And so when I went to write the story, I went back to those narratives. I had to go and find those old files, which were on, you know, like things that we don't use anymore. <laughs> I had to hunt them down on wherever they were and pull them all up. But it was great reimmersing myself in that because that was helpful. So when you're asking again, where those creatures and things came from, a lot of them predated the story, though I may not have fully imagined and fleshed them out until I actually sat down to write the story. I gotcha. Yeah, those night doctors, man, those, those, yeah, the those, doctors. those are some trippy, uh, trippy scenes. Yeah, the night doctors <laughs> were the most interesting because I actually wrote a story about the night doctors before I wrote my shout. And it was when I was still trying to think up Ring Shop, but I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I knew I wanted to do something with these night doctors. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that the night doctors would be in Ring Shop. <laughs> and so I wrote a whole short story based on the night doctors, and it's actually about the character, Dr. Antoine Bissette, and how he meets the night doctors, so it's like an origin story. And that story is, by the way, is going to come out for anybody who reads Ring Shop. That story is gonna come out <laughs> in November, but I'll let the people who are gonna put it out announce it. Um, but I wrote that first, and when I wrote Ring Shout, I remember looking back to that because it had a similar style and feel. Um, and I remember thinking, uh, I want to bring that story that I wrote into this story. I was like, can I do that? Is that allowed? I remember looking around like, am I allowed to have a crossover like a comic book? You know, like I used to love comic books. That was my favorite, right? Like when all oh, the Avengers are going to cross over the X-Men, it's a big thing. And so I, I did, I pulled the crossover. I bought in characters from a completely different story. Um, I'm not even certain if it's the same world. And I bought it into this one. And, you know, 
I didn't know if it would work. I remember when I when I finished it, when I finished Ring Shot, I was like, this is ridiculous. <laughs> like, there's too many, it's too many things going on. It's such a mashup. I said, this is not gonna work. And I sent it to Diana, and it takes a while for your editor to read and everything. And I was like, right. what are you gonna think? But she was like, no, this works. This is this is great. And she really hyped me up and made me think, okay, all right. One right try, right? I, I, I was on to something, okay. <laughs> yeah, though I, was, though I was not expecting, and I'm really thankful that uh, people like yourself and others really like the story. Um, again, it was my, oh, I'll get this little story out here. I really had it in my head, and but you know, I'm waiting for Master of Jin. That's the big thing. So yeah, yeah, you're over there just like I'll, just, I'll get, I'll get it out there. His reception <laughs> has been like I'm still like really y'all like this story. Okay, the weird well, there's one. So much, there's so much bigger, th you know, many bigger things to come. And yeah, I was like, this, okay, this is just like something I just threw together, guys. <laughs> yeah, like I just threw it on. <laughs> People loved it, and I'm, I mean, I'm really thankful. But it, it shows you how you can be surprised. You know which of your works are going to like oh that's really going to generate interest right where as because i've written other stuff and i've had that happen before like i thought you would like this other thing but if you like this i'm not telling you what to like thank you <laughs> i'm thankful that you like something that i did so yeah exactly um so missy had asked this question a little earlier uh, mm -hmm. and i wanted to get to it after uh, we talked about ring shout so she goes so you tochi onibuchi and river solomon have written novellas about the black american experience do you yeah. think that you're all onto something bigger now that you've covered slavery, Jim Crow, and modern systematic racism. Oh, wow. You know, it's funny that, that we all have, and I think it's it's also interesting that, um, and I'm, I don't want to speak the, to uh, River's um, background, but I know that Tochi's of also Nigerian descent. My parents are from the Caribbean, and yet we've been immersed in many ways within uh, Black American culture and history, right? Where, and this is, and I, get, I, I personally get this from my, from my mother, right? My mother kept books by John Hope Franklin in the house and, you know, and my mother, um, my mother probably immersed me more in African American history than in our, in my history of Trinidad, right? Uh, that was the history. She came here when she was 20 something, you know, she met Angela Davis and stuff like that. So this became our history. And so I grew up in a sense with this, with this, I guess my own form of double consciousness with having my background as uh, linked to the Caribbean and also this uh, steeped culture of uh, steeped in African-American history and culture, right? And so I'm so happy to be able to put all that out there. And I tend to try to blend the two. So you're always gonna probably see some aspect of the South. Uh, you're gonna see some aspect of the Caribbean and all this placed in here. But to answer the exact question, I don't know if, I can't say that um, when somebody says I'm going to go on to something bigger, I don't know exactly how I go on to something bigger when we're talking about something like slavery. Again, I'm a historian of slavery, so it'll be kind of hard <laughs> to go on. I, I, I've taught, I taught it yesterday. I'm teaching a class on comparative slavery. I'm teaching another one on the Haitian Revolution. So there's a way that that is going to be part of my reference. And not all my stories are part of that, yet it's something my stories do, right? There are stories I write that have nothing to do with any of that. Um, but yet, uh, that can, that's also going to be part of it. And so um, you'll probably see more things from me uh, based on issues of uh, where, where slavery is part of it, right? And history, and these histories are part of it because it's, 
it's part of what I study. It's part of what excites and interests me. Um, mm -hmm. And I understand that some of it at times, often I understand it's traumatic. And sometimes there's a story and I have to, I have to realize that with my students, they're talking about certain things that I see from a historical lens. I was like, it doesn't, it's not that it's not traumatic to me. It's that I, for one, I've seen a lot of it. Um, and even though it's traumatic, it also interests me. And I also believe it should be uh, spoken of, like, especially with speaking of enslaved people, I think of most enslaved people never got a chance to write a narrative, never got a chance to have their voices put out there, right? And so mm -hmm. one of the things I like to do when I do history is to try to uncover those voices, give them a voice, right? They didn't get to speak. Let me try to piece together what someone may have thought. And so sometimes in my writing, if I'm talking about things like slavery, like in the nine Negro teeth of George Washington, I mean, that was, you know, that was one of the things I wanted to talk about that here you have enslaved people who gave up their teeth. We have no idea what their lives were. We know all about George Washington, but we have no idea what their lives were. So how do we recover their lives? And so I decided to do it through a fable, right? That was also grounded in little bits of history. What goblins thrown in? Things like that, but <laughs> right? uh, there were always ways, anyone who was in the know could immediately pick up, oh, he's talking about Colonel Ty, the New Jersey runaway slave who fought for the British. Oh, he's talking about George Washington's cook, right? Who ran away. And so these these are things from our history that I pull in there, um, you know, because I think it has to be done. So I, I don't know, I can't speak for anyone else, but I know with me, uh, you're going to see more of that, but you'll also see other things. Yeah. Okay. Um, all right, last question I got for you, because I know we've uh, both got children to tend to. <laughs> um, can you tell everybody a little bit about your upcoming fantasy debut novel, A, Mr. Uh, a Master of Gin, which comes out next Gen. May? Yeah. So, and I just received the digital uh, uh, book version for copy edit. So, yay. Let's read that again and go through the entire book. <laughs> so, you know, I wrote uh, a story called The Dead Gin in Cairo that was published in 2016 uh, as a novelette on tour. And it was... It was a surprise again, the reception for it was, I was nervous, what's gonna happen? I have the biggest audience I've ever had in writing at the time and people liked it. And uh, that inspired me to write another story in that world called The Haunting of Tramcar 015. And so after two novellas, I said, well, I gotta get a novel out of here. <laughs> and so um, I'd started off, when I first started writing, I started writing novels, um, none published. I, before I could even figure out how to write short stories. And so this was my return to writing novels again. And it's basically um, a novel length uh, version set in that world. It returns us to the character Fatma, who is the uh, agent in a dead gin in Cairo. Uh, there's a new mystery uh, to solve. Um, you're going to see other characters from the haunting of Tramcar 015. Yes, Hamed and Unzi are going to be there. Everybody wants to know. Um, and it's really it's really my attempt to expand the world even further, um, which The Haunting of Tramcar 015 allowed me to do. It allowed me to flesh out the world more than I did in the first, this one even more so. And so it is, you know, there, there's adventure in it. There's, uh, there's snarky things, there's humor, there's gin, there's magic, there's steampunk. Um, yeah, hope people like it. Fantastic. It's almost like you did, you know, you're like your freshman, your sophomore, and yeah. your junior. So is there gonna be like an is there gonna be like an epic senior novel after, right. <laughs> after my huge uh, giant tome now? Yeah, your eight hundred page epic. Yeah. Well, that's the one thing about mysteries like this, you can't make them long, huge epics. People people are with you with the 
people are with you for a long, my dog wants to be in the shot now. Okay, thank you, everybody. Everybody see Barris. Yeah, um, he's, he's really acting up. So yeah, uh, you can, uh, yeah, okay. But, so yeah, I think you can do that with like a really long fantasy tome. You can, um, you can do that with your world building. I think you have to pare it down a bit, but you know, I hope one day to write the huge doorstopper giant uh, Malazan-esque <laughs> books that will, you know, stack up as tall as you are when they're all done. Again, I started, right. I started off writing after reading Robert Jordan. So, you know, it's coming at some point. There you go. Um, well, uh, I'll, I'll go ahead and end on that note. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, just again, thank you so much uh, yeah. for, for coming on and chat with me. Uh, I, I'm definitely looking forward to a master of gin and yeah. I'm going to continue yelling about ring shout until everybody reads it. It's so fantastic. Um, and uh, you know, obviously we're looking, you know, I know a lot of people are looking forward to it coming out next Tuesday, yes. um, but just uh, continue doing what you're doing. Cause you're doing a phenomenal job. Thank you. Uh, can you tell everybody uh, where to find you on social media? Uh, I can be found uh, on Twitter at, at Pijali, uh Clark, and I also have a website. Um, my official website is also my name, www.pjellyclark.com. So easy to find. There you go. <laughs> well, uh, well, thank you again, and uh, thank you everybody that tuned in. And um, yes. yeah, we'll uh, we'll try to do this again sometime. Thank you, David. These were great questions. Had a great time here. Same here. Thank you so much. All right.